I sometimes use the term shopping texture, you know, because on a, on a given day, uh, you know, some days we want to be more efficient. Some days we want to be, uh, we want the excuse to linger. And if, if you think of uh, retail more, more being uh, like the gift shop at the end of the ride, you know, more and more the ride is going to be what the marketer or the brander or the creator has to think about. And then the shopping is a, is a byproduct of a great ride rather than necessarily uh, uh, the reason for the ride. This is The Safari. The Safari is a tour around the consumer, brand, and retailing industry. And we have the great privilege here at my company, Traub, to really be exposed to many of the great minds of the industry who are forming and shaping the future of many different parts of the consumer brand and retail world. And I felt it was quite interesting for us to be able to not only learn from all of those people as we do every day, but uh, memorialize it into a podcast which could then be shared with many of our friends and clients and, and you, obviously, the listener. Welcome back to the Safari. This is Morty Singer speaking here from Traub's headquarters in New York City. And today, as I often do, uh, I want to talk about design and spatial design and architecture. And there is nobody better probably anywhere uh, than my old friend, Ken Nish. He's he's old friend, but he's very young and he looks very young uh, as well. The chairman of JGA, it's one of the, one of the most important retail uh, architecture and design firms in the country. And, you know, Ken's customer knowledge and entrepreneurial insights have been integral part of the conceptual development and st strategic image positioning of many, many retail manufacturer and brand marketers in entertainment, hospitality, traditional retail for over 40 years. Hard to believe, uh, but you must um, stick around and listen to him because he has really touched so many different companies and thought about how they should present themselves, you know, for the next five years. And he's done that his whole career. And I've always benefited from being able to call Ken and bounce something off of him. So let's get started. Ken Nish, thank you so much for joining me on the safari. How are you, sir? I'm doing well today. It's a beautiful sunny day and, and uh, I'm enjoying the view out your window uh, to the skyline of Manhattan. So uh, thank you for uh, that gift. No, oh, you're very welcome. Well, we are here uh, in February of 2020 at this recording, uh, hopefully at the tail end of a pandemic. And uh, it sounds like there's lots of good news coming through and there's vaccines sort of proliferating all over the world and there's new things happening to get people excited. And we think that uh, springtime and the springtime and summertime is going to be uh, like none before. Uh, and so hopefully it'll be springtime for retail as well. And uh, before we get started um, in, with this whole conversation, Ken, would you mind just giving a little background of, of, of JGA uh, and your, your storied history there? And, and then we can jump in. Uh, well, you know, I've had a, a, a great opportunity in the retail space work, working with some legends, in, including Marvin, uh, during my time uh, as a uh, intern or a co-op at uh, Federated Headquarters in Cincinnati. And uh, af after that, I joke around a bit. I've had, uh, you know, one parking spot in 500 careers, which has taken me around the world, uh, working with some uh, amazing entrepreneurs, uh, 
uh, founders, uh, creators uh, across really the full spectrum of uh, retail. And, and so it's it's interesting. Your firm um, and you in particular, I think, are quite unique because while yes, you're in the design and architecture field, you have always been intellectually curious about the operations of of retail. And in order to be a great designer, you kind of have to understand the plumbing of retail and how it works and how people flow through the business, how the back office works, what the staff changeovers must be. How, how have you felt that your, so let's call it academic interest in the, the business of the business has informed your more creative side of the of the business, of the industry? You know, you know, I think, well, I, I think part of this working at Federated was a great education because, you know, it, it was in its time, it was the, uh, they were the, it was the innovator. It was the creator of new ideas. It, it was the benchmark. Um, and so design really served the purpose rather than design as the purpose. But I, I'd probably say um, maybe beyond that, I had the opportunity to, to be on both public and private retail boards. And I have to say, I've gotten a bit of my education sitting on the other side of the table. Yeah. Uh, something I unfortunately think too often, no matter what our point of view is or expertise is, that, that sometimes we spend too much time on our side of the table and not enough time on the uh, the other folks' side of the table. And, uh, one, of, one of the interesting companies uh, I remain on the board of is uh, Spirit Halloween. that opens up uh, 1,400 stores, hires 40,000 people, trains them, uh, open uh, builds uh, a business and uh, ninety days later uh, packs it up and waits for the circus to come back. And, yeah, and, and people think that pop up is a new thing, right? right? <laughs> but I, I think it's a great example of uh, when you see something that rotates with that level of speed, you really be you know you see it in a in a, in a broader sense. Uh, great admiration for that that whole organization. So the um, the role of retail has shifted, uh, obviously, through your career, but maybe exponentially in the last five years and even more so in the last year. Um, I remain a devotee of, of bricks-and-mortar retail as a complement to an omni-channel and multi-channel strategy. Um, I even think that in this environment, coming out of this, uh, this time, uh, this pandemic that we've had, um, with real estate rationalization across the country, uh, indeed the globe, uh, having now occurred, um, I believe that the opportunity to have retail come to life in a very powerful fashion for brands that want to tell a story um, is, is something that um, everyone has talked about for the last however many years, but mm-hmm. few have actually been able to pull off because it, it was it was almost as if whatever they did was was lost in the din of everything else going on. Um, how do you feel the role of a store has changed throughout this past year, and and uh, where is the emphasis now? You, you know, I, yeah, I, obviously last year has been an interesting year, and I I would argue that the you know the who, what, and where challenges haven't really changed that much. Uh, your shopping patterns, customer journey, digital. I think the the uh, the the when and the how. Um, you know, there's been an acceleration of change. Um, you know, the approach of things being more hybrid and integrated than necessarily uh, segmented has accelerated. Um, but I, I think I would suggest stepping back a minute. I think rethinking about retail, not just as stores, but as hospitality, entertainment. F&B services, uh, uh, you know, ex- the environment um, is probably really what the store of the future is going to look like rather than 
a store of the future. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the distinction is if you see things, you know, simple as, uh, you know, what Tommy Bahama is doing with Marlin Bar, you know, is, is food and hospitality a, a service to the shopper or is food and hospitality a, uh, a, a, de- a, a motivation or an incentivization of the shopper to come and shop as a byproduct of the activity? And I think we have to think more broadly about what a store is and what retail is um, beyond uh, just the transactional environment that stores, uh, you know, tend to gravitate to when they don't think that way. So you've mentioned before the concept of making stores more interesting, uh, where the customer exists, where the customer actually wants to be. Can, is that what you're, is that sort of an, an, uh, an elaboration of, of where you're going with this concept? Yeah, I, I, I sometimes use the term shopping texture. You know, because on a, on a given day, uh, you know, some days we want to be more efficient. Some days we want to be, uh, we want the excuse to linger. And if, if you think of uh, retail more, more being uh, like the gift shop at the end of the ride, you know, more and more the ride is going to be what the marketer or the brander or the creator has to think about. And then the shopping is a, is a byproduct of a great ride rather than necessarily uh, uh, the reason for the ride. And and I think that's even more so as shopping behavior, you know, has changed during um, the last year is I think a lot of people realized I really don't have to go to certain places to do the things I thought I used to have to do only there. So that's, that's complicated saying like, I don't want to do what I don't want to do. And I figured out a way I don't have to do it. And so if I think of businesses like grocery and I think of other types of repetitive, you know, uh, uh, this uh, activities that I don't get reward over, why would I take my uh, time, especially my extra time, uh, to do those things? And do you feel that going to the mall, it, the mall versus the high street um, or main street, as we say here in America, uh, <laughs> is something that is um, the consumer is, is finding to be laborious as, or a chore? Or, or are you seeing your clients increasingly choosing Main Street stores versus mall stores? Is it unchanged? How do you feel the split is, is, is happening? Um, well, you know, I, I, I think if people used to say, you know, there's 250 places uh, in the country that I have to be, you know, today they may say there's 150 100, yeah. places I have to be. And of those 150 places, before maybe 125 of them were shopping malls, uh, and now hundred, uh, maybe uh, 75 of them are shopping malls and 75 are what I would generously call other mm-hmm. and other may be uh, a high street. It might be some type of destination community. It might be some type of, um, you know, event, you know, you see what's happening with, with things like lifestyle shows, which are, are sort of, uh, uh, I call them permanent temporary retail. And there are things that happen all the time. So much commerce has moved into places like these uh, lifestyle or these passion events. Uh, and commerce takes place in, in those type of places. They're sort of like malls on wheels, yep. you know, for all intents and purposes. Some of the stuff that happens at Javits is a great example. You know, think of Comic-Con is, is probably more a reflection of the mall of the future than necessarily, um, you know, our, our, our friends in uh, Secaucus is the mall, is the mall of, of the future. So when you started out doing uh, what you do, um, I believe that most CEOs saw their retail stores primarily as a distribution point, uh, a a, a mechanism for distribution, Uh, whereas today, increasingly, it's a canvas for uh, transmitting brand equity. 
And I think that there's been a huge shift in the thinking around what the store is. I mean, today I, 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 talk, I call it the media value of retail, mm-hmm. right? It's like a, it's a interactive billboard. And then, oh yeah, and by the way, you can buy product, right? Yep. Um, and hopefully because of the former, the latter, you're selling a lot of the latter, right? You're selling a lot of product. Um, how have you f- sort of felt that this, uh, that truism may be, um, or that shift from just being a, a random distribution point to being a place to educate, a, a place to reinforce a brand promise, you know, reputation is repetition, uh, to make it um, rich in in meaning maybe, or tug on the emotional cords. How, I'm, I'm assuming that these days you're trying to or needing to really push the envelope on creating these memories that people talk about or Instagram about, um, Maybe Instagram is old-fashioned now. Maybe it's everything else, you know, TikTok uh, and such. But um, t- tell me how you, as an architect, uh, have gone from the more, maybe sometimes more perfunctory things of, of, of you know, wayfinding and, uh, and, and, and line of sight and stockroom to emotion. But, you know, sort of, I guess, building on both your point and your question, if you, if you think about so many of the retail formats that uh, customers have voted as being successful, you know, off price, you know, dollar stores, you know, uh, uh, big box at home, electronics, you know, those look more like the back room than the front room of, of retail. And to some extent, uh, a lot of uh, particularly mall retail, you know, there was the front stock room and the back stock room and the front stock room had better lighting and nicer materials and, and, uh, maybe more attractive people, but by and large, it was just a version of what was behind the wall, just a better version. Yeah. And, and uh, I think the, the, the customer said, well, I don't necessarily uh, want to pay the premium for that level of differentiation, but I will pay a premium, a premium in my time and my money. If you give me something that is more um, exciting or interesting or unique and something that is, um, I guess more uh, that allows me to make mo- more of my mark um, not just to uh, uh, experience your mark. And, you know, I think if you think of what's happening in concepts like uh, like Meow Wolf, I think is a great example is, uh, you know, and, and what does the retail do? You know, something like $10,000 a foot or something like that. You know, the shop that's at the end of this. I think commerce retail be more attached to experiences rather than be the experience in itself. And, and if the retailer doesn't want to get lost, they have to get in the experience game, not just in the transaction game. So if I think of experiential brands that, uh, you know, our, our friends like in an urban outfitter and anthropology, um, you know, they're, you know, they're perennial, you know, favorites in the design community because they, they allow the space to be made more fresh daily, localized. You know, you see the hand of humanity. Um, it's, it's, uh, implicit versus explicit. You know, I, you, you, you don't see signs that tell you what you should think. You, you get a sense of, uh, emotion that tells you um, how you might want to think. And, and, and then the commerce comes at the end of that rather than at the beginning. But otherwise, why not shop online? Yeah. So there are probably, I mean, I know you're, very well traveled in every sense of the word, uh, but let's start with the sense of the word that is traveled across retail, across the pantheon of retail, and not just retail, but you know other points of sale across industries, whether it be the automotive industry, the fitness industry. Are you inspired by um, other 
industries. I mean, I, I often think about the opportunities that the uh, fitness companies would have had pre-pandemic to sort of merge in some way with the active lifestyle companies so that, you know, Lululemon, even though they do this to some extent, uh, and I think Nike also does this to some extent, but would actually, the destination of a Nike or Lululemon at scale would be to go exercise, to go to a gym, uh, and then the store would be attached or the mega store mm -hmm. would be attached. But you don't seem, one doesn't seem to see that. Um, have you found, um, other than, you know, some flagshipy type in instances that there are um, areas or, or industries or, or concepts that have been able to do the merging of the activity and the selling of product in a way that is um, truly scalable? Scalable is an interesting question because, uh, you know, um, success historically was that I could have 800 of these. And I think there's kind of a reassessment saying, do I really have four ideas that I have 200 that add up to 800 rather than I have 800 of the same idea? And I think this will ultimately be the measure of the future, future successful companies. You know, are they a great incubator and creator and leverager of, of new ideas and thinking? And they're able to take their, their operational skills and apply them across multiple ideas. Or are they only good at, at duplicating yeah. um, things? Well, let's talk about new ideas, right? So, um, Starbucks, one could argue, was the first WeWork, right? It, yeah. it, 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 they sold coffee and gave you space in exchange to hang yeah. out, right? And then WeWork kind of did the reverse. And they both have had you know, their own ver various measures of success, I would say. But mm -hmm. um, I think that um, retail hospitality, the idea that there's so much space, and when you walk into these temples, these stores, there's nothing going on in that. You, the, you hear the tinny music. You have a three people, you know, whistling Dixie, waiting for for people to come into the store. You have, you know, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of inventory sort of hanging loosely on on racks. Yet the space could be so much more better used um, to have people come in with comfortable sofas and plug in, use the Wi-Fi, and you know, almost like mini malls inside a store. Um, retail hospitality. And, and taking cues from the hospitality industry or Starbucks or WeWork um, is something that, that I would have expected to see more of. Have you seen uh, people trying to turn their stores into a workspace for people, customers to come and hang out and maybe they'll buy something. If they hang out for an hour, maybe something catches their fancy. You know, I, you know, I've seen a lot of really interesting um, ideas, but probably more ideas than, than implementation at this point. You know, I've seen companies, uh, you know, like uh, Shopify, I think is a really uh, innovative, fresh um, company. You know, it's, it's, you know, exploring all sorts of ideas. Um, you know, I see some of the developers, uh, you know, uh, I, th I think Mesa Rich is an example of really looking at how to rethink, you know, uh, amazingly located properties, you know, like a Tyson's or Santa Monica and think of them more as, um, uh, neighborhoods and communities rather than as malls that are somehow isolated by other activities. Um, but I think most of them will tell you that the, uh, the dearth or the, the barrier is uh, coming from the retailers and the retail ecosystem. Uh, to some extent, I think, um, you know, the business of retail sort of got marked down over the last couple of years. Uh, I think it's impacted the psychology. It's impacted the, uh, the investment environment. 
for for retail. Um, it's even infected uh, uh, affected the uh, the the talent pool mm-hmm. of of people. Yeah, and so you know part of the challenge is is um, I, I think I think there's lots of vessels out there that are looking for exciting ingredients, and they're really challenged uh, to find. Uh, the exciting ingredients. And I sound this, this sounds all gloom and doom. I apologize for that, but it's everything from literally how, uh, leasing agents are compensated for making lease deals, um, uh, that, uh, that creates grit in the system for, um, innovation. Um, so, you know, so having, um, said that my, my sort of, uh, ray of hope is, uh, you did an interesting interview back a few weeks ago with a, a gentleman from Signet, uh, Bill Brace. In you know, if you think of a company, a legacy company, mall-based, traditional identities, um, you know, segment uh, narrowed, you know, uh, and then you think of that interview talking about how changing the culture was really one of the first things they were doing around how internally teams integrated new concepts, different approaches, you know, taking that platform and sort of re. Thinking about you know integrating digital into the into the business in a fresh way, to me that is um, exciting as to what can happen. Yep. We just need to see more of that. Um, so so let's let's move on to to the the, the S word um, of sustainability, which is in some ways a, a really interesting quagmire uh, that brands have to deal with, especially large companies that. Do hope to roll out <laughs> hundreds of stores around the world, mm-hmm. um, and to think at the same time about um, net zero carbon, net zero energy. Um, you know, having to work with um, materials that maybe are recycled or uh, creating energy efficiency. I mean, how much of that today is truly? Um, achievable i.e those two versions of net zero um and how how are we on the path to being able to really um be mindful about how we build out these stores and 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 these fleets maybe around the world you know i think um uh you know disposability especially irresponsible disposability is probably the number one uh enemy of sustainability you know, it's the enemy because it, it lowers the value of the um, work of the people that make things. Um, it lowers the value of the resources that take into account uh, uh, that are, 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 you know, the raw materials that things are made out of. And then it, uh, it really diminishes the value of the physical place because physical place is also seen much like uh, packaging as being something that's disposable you know, in a, in a rapid cycle of change. Um, uh, we're in the process of actually putting a book together around a cultural, environmental, and social sustainability. Interviewed about 150 retailers around the world from, you know, a a micro boutique uh, in Paris to, you know, Selfridges and what they're doing around this topic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think a lot of the focus is moving uh, priorities are moving to social and cultural sustainability around what is the broader impact on people's um, lives, um, not, not just the environment, but this, the human environment, um, and then trying to be smarter and more sensible about um, uh, you know, what's, how, how uh, things are being spent on the physical environment. 
Yeah. I think you probably saw yesterday Nordstrom's announced they're they're starting to look at the resale market. Yep. You know, the a, a thread up to me is a really interesting retail model uh, uh, because it 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 sort of slows down the cycle of disposability. Yes. You know, VF Corp is doing some interesting things. But and how that relates back to the environment is just rethinking about um this the cycle of environment and change. And if you think of the environment being less uh, uh disposable in something that's more uh changeable or renewable, that's much more focused on sustainability than the idea that every three to five to seven years we blow it up, put it in a dumpster, and then you know but dump it someplace. Well that's where I was that's where I was about to go, which was you know, the depreciation cycle of fixturing uh is such that you kind of have to blow something up. But the truth is, if it were someone's apartment that you just built with the same fixtures, um, especially at the premium end of the, of the market, um, it would probably last decades, maybe 10 years, 15 years. Um, and so it's interesting about, uh, you know, just the people pushing sustainability, but then they have a depreciation cycle on the financial side of the house and reconciling the two is very hard. And so therefore maybe modular elements uh that can be shifted and turned and and adapted um and 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 morphed i guess into something new but using the same bones is is probably uh, where things are going have you used sort of maybe more modular items uh in in your latest work um you know it in in the u.s there's still a challenge because of the nature of of how we think uh, about new and old you know, where, where we've done this more successfully has been outside the U.S., particularly in Europe. Mm. And I think part of that is because so many of the businesses are family uh, and generationally owned businesses that have a different point of view about the value of, of things in the life cycle. You know, you know, build better to last longer. I think they see their spaces much more as uh, platforms in which they refresh and renew rather than as spaces that they, uh, they destroy and, and throw away. Uh, but I, what I'm thinking is happening in the U.S. and starting the conversation is is really shifting the the role of the the landlord, the tenant, and and then and then the operator. And if you think of um, uh, landlords building what I would call permanent temporary spaces, more in, infrastructure, uh, more flexibility to that infrastructure, and the idea that because of, of shortening lease cycles, that there's probably going to be more. A variety of tenants in a given space over a shorter period of time, and the old model of basically blowing it up every every uh, three to five years uh, yeah. doesn't economically work and it isn't sustainable. And yeah. so what I'm seeing is there's beginning to be more thought on the part of uh, uh, landlords thinking about space as something that uh, the airports are a good example where that model is quite effectively used already. Yeah, is that you know there's more shift, but there's more responsible shift. Speaking of airports and um you being well-traveled. We just talked about well-traveled across retail. Let's talk about well-traveled around the globe. Um, you are, um, I don't know, you, you are one of the people who I know have traveled more than most people I've ever met. I think you've probably been to most countries that have any semblance of retail. Um, where have you most recently, notwithstanding the fact that you probably haven't been on a plane in a year, um, where have you uh, most been inspired by maybe you know a small handful of places that really have got your heart racing and, and excited about what you saw in a in a few cities. Using the term uh, "developing country" is 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 kind of a backhanded compliment to a lot of a lot of places because 
in most places that we may think of as developing, whether it's you know Brazil or India or Mexico, um, you, there are environments in which um, there there's much more sophistication than what we're used to, and there's much more rawness, and it very often sits next to each other. Mm-hmm. And um, literally, it, it sits on the front doorstep. The rawness may may walking into a luxury uh, uh, environment uh, that's as sophisticated, more sophisticated than anything you'd find in in the North America. Yeah. And I and I think that the energy of that juxtaposition is um, exciting in its own right. But but historically, what's happened is those places they've sort of uh, you know put a guard at the door. What's exciting, uh, and we're working some interesting projects in Mexico and India right now um where they're looking at ways to really bring that energy and that sophistication into one environment mm. you know I, I think it's something that's probably not comfortable and natural in the u.s and yet this last year with so many uh ideas being looked at differently and in fresh ways whether i look at the energy of of urban communities and the and frankly the sterility of suburban communities and yep. how these different communities can learn from each other and benefit each other. You know, I, I, I see examples outside the U.S. where uh, it's, it's a very exciting outcome. Very few in the U.S. You know, we talk about gentrification uh, in the U.S. You know, in those neighborhoods and those developing countries, that's really not a term that people use because they're much more used to that uh, juxtaposition and the idea that there's value in that juxtaposition. Versus how we typically uh, approach when when retail becomes more sophisticated and corporate, the neighborhood becomes less interesting and dynamic. Yeah, and so I, I think if there's a lesson to learn is is uh, how to ethically and commercially maintain that um, uh, juxtaposition because in the end it's better for everybody. Yeah, it becomes a more human and natural environment. I mean, just having a sterile luxury mall with gates, um, you know, again, you. you you um you you don't have the energy you don't have people and you again you come back to those those store associates sitting there you know whistling dixie and um not having any anything to do until one customer comes in a day to make their day right, right. um without the energy that that comes with and by the way you know the surprising customer that will show up from actually creating the 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 desire for them to be in in a place versus a t- a, mm-hmm. some kind of temple to, to luxury, you know, um, or retail. Right. Um, and so one last uh, thing um, and before we have to wrap up, um, uh, what brands uh, slash spaces uh, could be both have really inspired you specifically? Again, talking about your nomadic nature traveling across the whole industry. What, what brands inspire you? What spaces of those brands have inspired you recently? You know, I think um you know if if you using using your term um um safari is um i you know i think if you uh if 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 i were to draw a like a frame around a neighborhood um so uh, if i look at mexico city and there's an area called uh condesa roma if you and, and it's become quite popular i think from a netflix or a showtime series mm-hmm. um and the um, sort of the the shopping texture, you know, of of the of the uh, bakery that's been there for three generations, next to the um, uh, coffee uh, place that uh, two you know artists opened up as a studio that allows you to be part of that studio in, environment um, and almost a, a salon. 
you know, which sits next to a, a luxury brand that sits next to, you know, a church, um, to me are the, are the, the places. If, if you, if you're trying to say narrow it down to a store, you know, part of the danger would be is, um, you know, thinking about everything a year ago. <laughs> Um, and you, you know, you would talk about Selfridges or we would talk about Dover Street Market or we would talk about um, uh, Palacio de Hierro um, because they were they were great. Um, they were emporiums. They weren't stores. And I and I would say, if you think about retail, um, not as a store, but as an emporium of ideas, emporium of products, emporium, emporium of activities, I think the question is going to be what will be um, in the future, who will be hosting these emporiums? Uh, you know, uh, who will be in those emporiums? Um, and then what will be the texture of the activities in those? I, I know I'm giving you a circular answer, but I, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm um, hesitant to say uh what was good a year ago and what's going to be a good a year from now and what's going to be different. Cause I think it has to be, it has to be different. I can't imagine walking down Madison Avenue of two years ago and then talking about, uh, you know, the great things on Madison Avenue in, in the same light. But what I'm, I think I'm hearing you say though, if you're describing Roma in, in Mexico, uh, Mexico city is almost a, a, a desire to manufacture uh, even though in this case it's not manufactured, it's natural. Manufacture a way that the main street used to be, which was more organic and a instead of having a row of you know two hundred international brands together in one place, that they be interspersed across local, international, um, and even cultural elements that create to I think to use your term texture and to create authenticity and vibrancy at the same time. And so that if, if one is to take something away from this conversation, maybe it is if you're building an environment, a shopping environment, uh, a place to live for people, um, make sure that you surprise and delight them with things that are historically more natural to humanity in their way of shopping for the last 5,000 years versus what was maybe manufactured over the last 50. Right. And this, and and to keep the serendipity, and this is what when we talk about the store and the mall, you know, the the mall, um, we got kind of got lazy, you know. We we found a, a a template, we found you know willing participants in the template, both on the store side and the customer side, and um, people were able to make a lot of money, uh, you know, pushing the 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 go button. Um, I don't think it's going to be so easy. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. who, uh, who is going to be the catalyst, whether it's designers or, or creators or entrepreneurs to, to be the ones to do the hard work. Who is going to be the catalyst indeed? You're going to be the catalyst, my friend. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for, for joining me on the safari. Ken Nish, chairman of JGA. It's always such a pleasure. And thank you so much for joining me on the safari. Thank you, Morty. It's been fun. It always is. If you want to learn a little bit more about Traub, you can go to traub.io, where you'll learn a lot about everything that we do. If you're enjoying the safari, please do share it with your friends and colleagues within the industry. 
And please also don't forget to subscribe and like it. Until next time.